You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching from The Greatest Story is entitled Paradise Lost. Good evening, everybody. It's a joy to be with you again. So week three, and we're finally getting into the story. So if I were to compare this process to building a house, the past two weeks have been like the site prep. So we've excavated and routed waterways and just poured the foundation. And now we're ready to start building up. I'm terrible at visualizing the finished product when something is being built. I don't know about you. Um, Our house that we live in now was a new build, and so we loved going to visit the site while it was going up and watch the progress. Um, Now, my husband can look at a blueprint, and he has a picture of what it's going to look like at the end. I will never understand. But so we'd go over there, and he would try to explain to me what was going on, and I'd be like, yeah, it's super cool. Just looks like a bunch of two-by-fours, you know what I'm saying? I just couldn't see it. But when the drywall went up, I was like, oh, it finally all made sense. And that's kind of how it is with God's plan of redemption, right? It starts out really broad and vague. But as we progress through this, as we build in the details of God's story, we begin to see things take shape. And you know where we're headed. The climax is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the cool thing is all these details that are being built in now are going to make so much more sense later as they find their fulfillment in him. So today, we're going to start framing the walls, okay? Our opening scene tonight is in the Garden of Eden. And what do we actually know about Eden? In your homework, I asked you for some observations straight out of the text. And I'm sure you were able to pull some things out, but you also probably concluded, as I have, that we don't know as much as we'd like to. Anybody else? (laughs) I'm also going to guess that you have some preconceived ideas of Eden, because I did. I do. Eden is generally described as being absolutely perfect, just the ultimate state of creation and of human existence. And to be fair, we get this notion rightly because it's the best we've known so far. It gives us a glimpse of life without sin. But I have to poke at this concept of perfect a little bit, okay? The first thing that got me thinking about this was how the word perfect is used other places in Scripture, particularly the New Testament. So when it's used elsewhere, it means whole, complete, mature, not lacking in anything. Even in the English dictionary, it's a pretty strong definition. It says excellent or complete beyond improvement. But Genesis doesn't use the word perfect. What does it say? Good, right, very good. So I'd like to propose to you that Eden was not perfect in the sense of the word because it was not whole and complete. It wasn't the best that there ever will be. I think there are two simple facts that prove why Eden was not whole and complete. So there was a lot of good, right? But first of all, evil was permitted entrance into the garden. For whatever reason, God in his sovereignty allowed 
evil to enter and influence Adam and Eve. Secondly, human beings had the capacity to sin, to reject the Lord. So I think we can all just agree factually on those two statements. But my, don't they open a can of worms. <laughs> I bet if I give you five minutes, your small group could just fill a page front and back with how and why questions. This past Sunday, one of my third graders said, but why did God even make the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? <laughs> I was like, that's a great question, buddy. <laughs> I'm not going to make you do that exercise of futility because there aren't answers to all those questions. It's good to think critically. I don't want you to just read your Bible mechanically and ignore all those glaring questions that rise to the surface when you read an account like this. It's good to wrestle through those questions together, to try to apply logic from the rest of Scripture. But the danger is here that we get lost in speculation. There's simply things that we're not going to know at the end of the day. So, as you think and ponder about these things, just do so humbly. There's a lot of information left out of this account. But you know what has been a great comfort to me? Is that God intentionally gave us what he did. No more and no less. He didn't accidentally leave something out. He revealed what was necessary for us to know, not necessarily everything we want to know. So what is it that God wants us to see? in this account of Eden and the fall. As I've already mentioned, Eden was not the ultimate state of glory. Simply put, those two facts that I just mentioned, the presence and influence of evil, and that humans had the capacity to sin, will not be true of the new heavens and new earth. There will be no evil, and there will be no sin. In your homework, uh, you compared those end caps of the Bible, as I like to call them. So the first two chapters of Genesis and then the last few chapters of Revelation. I just love these parallels. When we see something come up in Eden, we see it repeated often again in the new heavens and new earth at the end. And it's often in greater measure. God is showing us that Eden was just a taste of what's to come. We look back at Eden longingly because it's so much better than our current reality. But the truth is, there's a better garden city to come. One that will be perfect in every sense of the word. Whole, complete, beyond improvement. This is our inheritance as believers. But do we live like that? Though we may confess to believe that, our words and actions often tell a different story. It can be so easy to slip into this mindset of living between Genesis 3 and Revelation 18. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? If our story runs from Genesis 3 to Revelation 18, we think that sin has just always been, and it's just this problem to be managed until we wake up in heaven one day. We miss the beautiful, sinless beginning of God's kingdom on earth. We miss God's intention behind it all. And what's the point if this sin problem is never going to go away? The world is just on a downward spiral. Life is reduced to just enduring or, worse, acting like eternity doesn't exist at all. 
Do you ever catch yourself saying, oh, this world is going down the drain. Woe is me. Woe are the children. <sighs> I've heard it quite a bit. <laughs> is there an element of truth to this? Of course there is, okay? But the story of the Bible informs us that though Eden is far in the rearview mirror, God's plans and purposes haven't changed. His intention to establish an earthly kingdom will not be thwarted. And Eden has given us a taste of what's to come. The truth is this world is passing away. The brokenness will not go on forever, thank the Lord. So we will see a degradation of society as people spurn their creator. But God's kingdom, the true church, is alive and well. Do you hear me? Do not look around at what you see as if it's the ultimate reality. There is a bigger story that's unfolding that your circumstances or your newsfeed or your feelings are not going to be able to communicate. I understand it can be awfully discouraging out there, but this is why we need the context of the end caps of the Bible. We need to cling to these truths in the dark that God's kingdom will not fail, his purposes are not thwarted by sin, and we're still moving towards resolution of his story, which is glorification. He will set all things right and make all things new. So which story are you going to believe? Which story are you going to live in? Another implication of Eden being considered perfect or complete is that we assume it was Adam and Eve's just little paradise where they were to live happily ever after. But Eden was never meant to be the end in and of itself. God's commands to Adam and Eve reveal his heart, his intention, but we have to think critically because it's implied. And spoiler alert, God's intent for his people hasn't changed, so this applies to you too. Let's take a look at Genesis 1.28 uh, to identify God's specific commands. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, we have five commands in that verse alone. Find the verbs at quarter of eight at night. Are you with me? Be fruitful. I highlighted them for you. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Okay? Five things. And I'm also going to throw Genesis 2.15 in there because it gives a little description of Adam's work. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Now, if you look at this list, do you see how it could possibly be split into two categories? I think that we can group, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Um, they're very much in the same vein, okay? There's this outward growth, this spreading, filling. We're going to call that category expansion. And then we could name the, we could group the remaining commands there, subdue the earth, have dominion over creation, work and keep, and call that category dominion. All right, expansion and dominion. Now let's consider what this means for Adam and Eve 
and what this communicates about the heart of God. So first of all, expansion. Practically speaking, they were to have babies to make more image bearers of God. God desired that humanity would expand and fill the earth for his glory. Remember, we are the only part of creation that bears his image. So by filling the earth, just like we talked about last week, we are living image bearers that reflect the glory of our source, of our creator. And this concept of filling is so critical. Eden was not meant to be a stagnant pool, but rather a spring that would overflow its borders and fill the whole earth. And then on to dominion. I'm going to guess that out of these two, this definitely carries the more negative connotation. Okay, because like our words for this are dominating, domineering, subduing. It sounds very oppressive. But when we discover God's heart in this command, we also recover a biblical definition of dominion. And that is actually really important for how we view God. The easiest way to understand this is just by simple comparison. Okay? Sinful dominion uses humans and resources under one's authority for selfish gain. Godly dominion stewards and cultivates humans and resources under one's authority for their flourishing and for the greater good of all. Think of what a beautiful society that godly dominion can create. Our understanding is grossly distorted because of sin. Humans are meant to have dominion, to steward, cultivate, and rule in a way that reflects God's character. Psalm 8, 3 through 6 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Do you hear the echoes from Genesis? Now those verses are actually re-quoted in Hebrews 2. But in Hebrews 2, it's talking about Jesus. Our sin nature has rendered us incapable of executing this mission. But Hebrews connects the dots for us. Jesus, the son of man who came as the spitting image of God, he executed godly dominion perfectly. And when he returns and sets up his kingdom in fullness, we will live in a society of sorts under his godly dominion. No abuse of authority, just absolute purity and righteousness. But in the meantime, God's commands, theologians call this the cultural mandate, still stands. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, rule, steward, and cultivate in a way that reflects who I am. So to bring all these pieces together, I have a summary statement for you. I believe that God's intention for creation is to fill the earth with his glory by establishing his kingdom among and through his people. 
to fill the earth with his glory by establishing his kingdom among and through his people. This is something that we're gonna come back to over and over and over again throughout the study. So just keep it simmering on this back burner. I want you to think if you agree with this or not. After considering God's heart for his people in his world, Genesis 3 comes as quite the gut punch. The more we meditate on the beauty of God and his design, the greater the heartbreak of sin. We're going to walk through Genesis 3 together. There is so much here, but I'm just going to highlight a couple main points so we can get a concise understanding. I'm going to be using the ESV version. You can use whatever version you want, but there's ESV on the table if you want to follow word for word. Okay? So let's begin here. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Just seven short verses, and yet everything has changed. Evil has corrupted God's very good creation. So just starting right off the bat with verse one, the serpent is planting a seed of suspicion against God himself. Did God really say? And then Eve enters a dialogue with the serpent instead of stepping on his head right then and there. Some of God's words get twisted. And as the story progresses, we can see that Eve's suspicion is growing. Is God holding out on me? Is God really looking out for my best interest? Can he be trusted? In verse 6, we see the progression of sin as that seed of suspicion grows and blossoms into actions. All right, you looked at this in your homework. Look for the verbs here. She saw the fruit, took the fruit, ate the fruit, and gave the fruit. Saul took, ate, gave. This progression is far too telling of our experience. Many times, when we fall into sin, it starts out innocently enough. Something just catches our ear, catches our eye. And instead of shutting it down and turning back to the Lord, we give it audience. We pause, we linger, we listen, we behold. And then we come in close enough proximity to reach out and take whatever it is. And we eat it, usually metaphorically. We ingest it and give in to its empty promises. And then unfortunately... We often give, whether that's dragging someone else into the sin or the effects of the sin affecting those around us. Let's pan back out for a moment. 
What would you say is the root sin of Eve's disobedience? I would love to hear some of your thoughts. There isn't necessarily a right answer here. It was in your homework. I know you wrote something down. Yeah. Pride. Okay. And Jenny's not even here to back you up tonight. <laughs> Pride, yes. That's a common one I've heard. What else? Greed? What'd you say? Discontent? Mistrust? Deception? Lust? Oh, yeah. Lust of the eyes, lust of the mind. Good. Yes, yes, wanting the forbidden. So you can make a case for a lot of different things. Um, the three that I've heard most often are pride, um, unbelief, which is some of the same as what you said, um, and idolatry. I'm still kind of working on that one. Whatever that root sin was, though, we ultimately see rejection of God's lordship as the sovereign creator king. And this is often how it works. Our skepticism of God leads to self-preservation or self-elevation. And instead of operating out of belief, which looks like trust and obedience, we instead operate out of autonomy. Now when I say autonomy, that, that can be a good thing. It just means that we have agency or responsibility over our actions. Okay, that is an accurate statement, and that's a good thing. But when I use it in this context, I mean it in the sense of self-governance instead of God-governance. I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll decide what's best for me. Somebody's got to look out for my interests because obviously God's not. Do you hear that, like, defensive posture? So let's continue reading in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pause there. From the very beginning, it's clear. Sin induces fear and shame when confronted by the holiness of God. Those flimsy fig leaves weren't doing any good. But Adam and Eve were desperately exposed and they knew it. Not only did they cover their bodies, but they went so far as to hide from God. So instead of coming towards him in repentance, the sin repelled them in the opposite direction. This is what sin does. It separates. We need to look no further to see the vertical brokenness that sin brings. The relationship between God and mankind is severed 
And then additionally, you see a horizontal brokenness between Adam and Eve themselves. Their partnership in the mission of the kingdom is now replaced with suspicion and division and blame shifting. As I was considering these consequences of sin, I had to think of my kids. (laughs) They've come a long way. They're 9 and 11 now in terms of conflict management. But oh my, when they were little. These two things were a part of almost every fight and reconciliation. So when I would go approach them to try to help them work through this, the guilty one would so often be hiding, like literally in a closet, like I couldn't find them. And then when we'd finally draw them out, okay, start to talk through things, oh, the blame shifting, right? And we still do this. It's so easy to justify our own sinful responses just by pointing at what someone else has done. But in all this brokenness and fear and shame, and quite awkwardly, it's just embarrassing. How does God engage them? He doesn't come down from heaven in wrath seeking to destroy them. Although I would argue he has every right. But no, he comes walking, imploring. Where are you? What have you done? He knows, of course, but this is giving us a window into his heart. He is just, but oh, he is also merciful. He is calling out to them to return to him for repentance and restoration. In the next several verses, verses 14 through 19, God pronounces curses for um, their disobedience. For time's sake, I'm not going to read them word for word, but here are just a few summarizing thoughts. Who does God curse first? The serpent, right. And take notice in verse 14, this is the only direct curse that is issued. God says, cursed are you. You will not find that phrase in his language to Adam and Eve. And this verbiage of on your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is poetic imagery, but essentially what it's trying to communicate is that the devil's fate has been sealed. He is convicted, he is condemned, and there is no hope of redemption for him. And it's in the middle of these curses that we come to verse 15. This is the first promise of a savior to come. One born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. We're going to come back to that at the end. Let's keep moving. The next set of curses is toward the woman. There will be pain in childbearing. The relationship between the man and woman will now be one of strife instead of unity. Competition instead of collaboration. You'll be quick to assume the worst of each other, to strive against each other instead of striving together as co-laborers. Boy, do we feel that. In addressing Adam in verse 17, again, God does not curse him directly, but instead he curses what? The ground. Essentially, Adam's work of cultivating the earth instead of being fruitful and joyful is going to be toilsome and painfully frustrated. Here's what we need to see in these verses. What does Adam's work of cultivation remind you of? Where do we just use that language? 
It's dominion. God's commands of dominion. And what does Eve's curse on childbearing remind you of? It's expansion. God's mission for this partnership of man and woman has been tragically fractured because of their sin. So ever since Eden, the work of dominion and the work of expansion is utterly broken. Our sin distorts the very work that he designed his people to do. With all this context in mind, let's step back and consider the big picture of what sin actually is. I had you start working with the definition in your homework. The English definition is simply offense against moral or religious law. It's pretty straightforward. But the Greek word for sin, as used in scripture, gives us some additional dimension. Eternal loss or forfeiture due to missing God's mark. It's not just breaking a law, but it's forfeiting something as a result. And what is it that we're forfeiting? A lot of things were broken with humanity's fall into sin. But the most important thing was communion and right relationship with a holy God. Humans were designed to be connected to him, and that was lost. So regardless of all the subsequent consequences and all the trickle-down effects, this one matter leaves us in quite a predicament. God concludes the set of curses with a pronouncement of mortality. Death will come, just as he warned. The wages of sin is death. Our physical bodies are now susceptible to sickness and disease. And one day, every one of us will physically die. And this outward wasting away is just like a visible reminder of what sin has done to the human nature. Adam and Eve were the only humans, aside from Jesus, of course, to experience pure humanity. But ever since the fall, human nature is now synonymous with sin nature. As you saw in Romans 5, none of us are exempt from this. This nature, this essence has been passed down to every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve. It's not really a pleasant thing to dwell on, but we have to recognize just how desperate our situation is. We have to stare the bad news in the face before we can get to the good news. Mankind has inherited this seemingly permanent spiritual corruption. It's a total person infection that renders us as good as dead, and there's nothing we can do to reverse the consequences. That's a pretty hopeless scene. But are you ready for the good news? Let's circle back to Genesis 3.15. This is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. And it comes right on the heels of humanity's fall into sin. In this, it's like in the same breath as God condemns Satan, he also makes this promise. I will put enmity or drive a wedge between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's as if he's saying, I won't leave you stuck here. There will be one 
born of woman who will bring deliverance and redemption from this curse of sin. I will make a way to restore what you have destroyed. The entire redemptive story is built on this promise. The gospel, Genesis 3. We would do well to read the Old Testament through the lens of this verse, looking for the promised deliverer. So let's finish out our chapter. Let's pick it up again in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent them out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Immediately following the curses... Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of all the living. Despite this foreboding promise of death, they seem to have some understanding that it wasn't immediate. He did promise them offspring, after all. There was hope. In verse 21, God clothes Adam and Eve with garments of skin. How do you get garments of skin? You slaughter an animal. Don't miss this. This is the very first atoning sacrifice. And it is performed by God on behalf of man. Instead of Adam and Eve dying on the spot, an animal is killed in their place. And then the covering is placed over them. Does that sound like anything else you know? In verses 22 and 24, Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden, out of their very good and beautiful home. Now this takes a little bit of interpretive work, but from what I understand, God expelling them from the garden is absolutely an act of judgment, and we should be grieved in this scene. But I also believe it's an act of mercy. It seems to be implied that if they had eaten of the tree of life at that point, that they may have become physically immortal. And so logically, it's like God is saying, I don't want you to live forever in this broken state. This isn't the way it's meant to be. And so I'm going to separate you, not only from my presence, but also from the means that you have to potentially lock yourself into this situation. There needs to be an end. And immediately, the plan of redemption begins to unfold. Friends, this is not plan B. Scripture is clear that God established that Jesus Christ would be the one to accomplish redemption before the foundations of the world. It's God himself who executed that first sacrifice. And it is God himself who executes the final sacrifice of his own son to restore creation. We need a second Adam to act as our representative. 
Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The first Adam was tempted in a garden And he failed and brought death to all mankind. But the last Adam was also tempted in a garden. And he passed the test. And his obedience and his alignment to God the Father has brought life for all who believe. That we may again one day walk with him in the cool of the day in the glorious garden city to come. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we just long for that day. I thank you for the end caps of the Bible that you have given us, the whole story from beginning to end. There's a lot of details that we don't know, but you've given us what we need to know. And so we see the beauty of Eden, and as much as we long for that, oh, do we rather long for the new heavens and the new earth when all creation will be restored and all things will be set right. And Father, as we spend time in Genesis 3, we're just reminded again of the atrocity of our sin. Father, I just pray um, that through your spirit you would convict our hearts. Help us to hate it. Help us to instead come to you, that merciful Father who is ready and willing to forgive because you are the one that has executed that final sacrifice. And Father, even though we're still in Genesis 3, we praise you for Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for your obedience, for your sacrifice, and for being the accomplisher to redeem us back to yourself. We love you. I just pray you would continue to reveal yourself to us as we go throughout these weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.